What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, greetings from the Legatus Summit in beautiful Dana Point, California, here on a Friday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That number is um, one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 and you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price, Charles Beery producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And uh, Ace, well, actually, I don't even, I don't know who is handling. Maybe Michael McCall is handling social media today. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. I've been informed it's Rich Jesse that is handling our social media efforts. But one and only. The person you came to hear is here, Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, I'm doing fine, thanks. And uh, I hear a lot of hubbub in the background of your microphone. Maybe you want to tell folks where you are? Yeah, I did when we oh, first came oh, you on did. there. You know, that just, yep, that shows how connected I am. I'm off in go. outer space there. Okay. There you go. Very good. Listen, I've got an email here, not from Dana Point, but from uh, David in Cleveland, Oklahoma, of all places. And he says, in The Godfather 3, there's a scene where Michael Corleone is at the Vatican and gives confession to a cardinal. He confesses that he ordered the murder of his brother. The cardinal then refuses to give him absolution. Does a priest have the discretion to do that? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. A priest can refuse absolution uh, if the penitent is not contrite. That would be that would be the condition. If he discerns that the penitent is not contrite, he he can refuse absolution. Um, there are there are some other crimes, uh, there are sins and crimes that have particular canonical sanctions attached to them, such that absolution can be granted. But there are other things that need to be done in terms of lifting excommunications and things like that. But basically, the rule for refusing refusing absolution would be uh, would be when there's a lack of contrition. Uh, Jeremy writes in, why did Catholics move the Sabbath to Sunday? Yeah, thanks. You know, we get this question all the time, and the answer to the question is we did not move the Sabbath. It is still located on Saturday where God put it on the first day of creation. So here's the misunderstanding, right, that uh, Christians especially worship on Sunday— and uh, so-called Sabbatarians, these are Christians that believe we should have Christian worship on Saturday, are under the false impression that the Sabbath is a day of worship and that the Christian church kicked it forward one day in the calendar. And that's not the case. If you go read the Old Testament Sabbath commandment, it doesn't say anything in there about worship. It's very clear that it is a commandment for the Israelites to refrain from work. That's really all that's 
uh, established in the Sabbath commandment. Refrain from work and allow your servants to refrain from work and employees and the like. But what Christians do on Sunday is we celebrate the Feast of the Lord's Resurrection principally by offering the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, whether or not we engage in work. And of course, for the first several centuries of the Church's history, uh, you know, the rest of the universe didn't take Sundays off. That was, that was you know, a work day for everyone, and Christians would get up early in the morning, they would go to Mass, uh, they would receive the Lord's body and blood and offer them in sacrifice to God and sing hymns of gratitude and then go about their day. Um, uh, it wasn't specifically set aside as a day of rest as well in, uh, in Christian tradition until a few centuries down the road, and that's fine, and there's reasons to do that. But the, the essence of Sunday is the celebration of the Feast of the Lord's Resurrection, who rose on Sunday. And we, we find uh, the beginnings of this Sunday feast in sacred scripture. So we're just, we're just following the tradition of the apostles here. And, uh, you know, the, the, the earliest apostles who were Jews and Christians would, uh, would go to synagogue on the Sabbath and talk about Jesus, and then they would turn around and celebrate the Lord's resurrection on Sunday. So they're really two different feasts. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Andrew writes in, I'm interested in reading uh, more about Catholic dogma. Could you recommend a book to help me with this? Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of a better text than the book, The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, by Ludwig Ott, O-T-T. Uh, Ott is a little bit dated, in that his uh, his manual was published, I think, in the 1950s, so it doesn't include um, doctrinal developments uh, since the Second, Second Vatican Council. But um, you know, it does include the the dogma of the Immaculate, I mean, of the of the uh, of the, uh, the, Asc- the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So it's it's up to date in terms of proclaimed dogmas. So that's really all you need. So I would recommend Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. If you'd like to be part of the program, we've got wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 271 2985 And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. That is ctc at ewtn.com. Straight ahead, we'll talk to John in the great state of Michigan. And we're just getting started, so we've got plenty of time for your phone calls. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Just going to give you a little reminder to join us for Holy Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. That happens every single day, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call. Anywhere in the United States and Canada, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders.
know, if you like EWTN's bookmark brief with Doug Keck, it's a short little synopsis in the author's own words of the book that is covered on that particular episode of Bookmark, you can actually have that sent directly to your email inbox. Simply log on to EWTN.com and click on subscriptions. Again, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is John in the great state of Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you. Um, I was a cradle Catholic, and when I was married, when I finally got married... We had children, and we had them all baptized and confirmation and all that. But we really didn't know why we were really going to church. So um, we had another child, and it was diagnosed with Turner Syndrome. And it went eight months and was stillborn. And we went to the church. Again, we weren't really practicing, but we were Catholic, and asked for a Mass, and were told not we couldn't get a Mass because the child never breathed air. And shortly after that, we left the church permanently. I've returned probably about five years ago, probably because of your show, Mother Angelica, my mother, and a lot of other factors. But this is a huge stumbling block of mine and my wife. Yeah, sure. John, first of all, I'm so sorry, both for your loss and and for the treatment you received at the hands of the parish. I mean, my heart goes out to you. It really does. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a, a question or two. When you were refused a Mass for your stillborn child, was it the priest himself who refused directly, or was it the you know the parish secretary or whoever you approached about the question? It was the priest himself. It was the priest. Okay. Yeah, that's puzzling to me because I'm I'm not conscious of any policy or rule or principle in church teaching that says you have to be breathing to have a mass said for you. That 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 doesn't make any sense to me. And I and I I don't know what this guy was thinking. And because the church's teaching, of course, is that you're fully human, endowed with an immortal soul from the moment of your conception. And while, you know, generally speaking, people would not be overly concerned about the eternal fate of a stillborn child because this is someone who hasn't ever done any actual sin. And so there's literally nothing to be condemned in this person, and the presumption would be the child is in heaven. Uh, nevertheless, it, no mass is ever wasted, and and I think even just out of pastoral sensitivity, out of a kind of pastoral care and solicitude for the parents, if nothing else, the uh, the gentle thing and the the loving thing would have been to say the mass. And I I I really don't understand why that was refused to you. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, and uh, and I think it was the wrong pastoral call. So I'm. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really sorry that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that you came back to the church. And the way I would think about this is, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I've been Catholic for 20 years now, and I have had some extraordinary pastors and priests 
who have ministered to me and to my family and have just made a world of difference in our lives, I've also had some real humdingers that have said and done atrocious things and left us feeling abandoned and maltreated and, uh, and tremendously discouraged. Uh, but the way I handle that personally is that I recognize that, you know, priests come in all shapes and sizes the way the rest of us Catholics do. And not just because someone carries the name of Catholic or holds the office of priest doesn't mean that they do so in an exemplary fashion. And, you know, if I, if it comes to, you know, St. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, you know, what if the fellow in front of you doesn't particularly seem to be following Christ in his comportment? Well, I don't want to follow that guy, right? You know, I mean, I personally am somewhat selective in, in the priests that I approach for pastoral care. Um, if, I, if I know a fellow that seems to me to lack charity and good sense— I'm not going to go to that guy for pastoral care. I mean, maybe in a pinch, in a case of urgency, I might. But under most circumstances, I'm going to seek out a wise and holy priest who has a heart for ministry and a heart for people who can who can approach me and my family with sensitivity and concern and some wisdom. Um, and uh, and that's what I'm going to do. And I recognize that you know there are priests who are sinners. There are priests who will end up in hell, just like there are lay people who will end up in hell. And um, and I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to paint the tar the entire church with the same brush. You know, if, if one person does a bad thing, I don't necessarily think it's representative of the entire Catholic Church. God bless you, John. We will certainly keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is David in Lafayette, Louisiana, also listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. David, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders, I, I wish I could be in California because it's raining and it's cold over here in South Louisiana. So, anyway, um, I have a question for you. Um, I'm reading the Bible again, um, and I came upon a, a passage that's always con- always uh, really confused me, and it's uh, in Genesis chapter 9, I think it's verse 20, where um, Noah, um, uh, who uh, develops a vineyard, one night he drinks too much wine, and I guess he passes out drunk in his tent and uh, naked. And one of his sons discovers him naked, tells the other two brothers, and then they basically, the two other brothers uh, cover him with a blanket. And um, the next morning when Noah wakes up, he um, he ends up uh, getting mad about it, it seems like, and cursing his grandson and basically puts a, you know, curses his grandson and, uh, you know, basically, uh, um, takes it out on one person who had nothing to do with it. And I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I have several thoughts on that and I appreciate the question. And I acknowledge this is one of those kind of rather odd and enigmatic passages of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, of course, is full of this kind of thing and, and we can make a lot of hay out of it. Um, so first of all, I think that this story is what biblical scholars would call an etiology, and that is to say that it is a, it is a, 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 the question of historicity needs to be just put aside for the second. So I'm going to use a term, but don't misunderstand me. And I'm not, this is irrelevant to the question of historicity. It's a kind of mythological or legendary account that is meant to explain a phenomenon that is contemporary from the writer's point of view. So, of course, the book of Genesis was written centuries after the events that it purports to describe. 
but in the in the in the lifespan of the author of the text or the authors of the text, there is a social phenomena for which the author seeks an explanation or offers an explanation that is given in terms of a story, a myth, or a legend that supposedly took place, you know, centuries or millennia earlier. What is that condition? What is the social reality that the book of Genesis is addressing? Well, it is the the Israelites' relationship to their Canaanite neighbors. And as you know, when Joshua entered the Promised Land, he had a mandate to, to forcibly displace the Canaanites. And there are lots of explanations given in the text as to why that is. And the, the long and the short of it is the Canaanites were up to a lot of no good. And, and the, the text actually says that God vomited them forth from the land and uh, displaced them, dispossessed them, and gave their inheritance to the Israelites. That's a big part of the storyline of the Exodus and the book of Joshua. And this seems to me to be part of the same story, that this is an explanation for why the promised land was given to Israel uh, to the, uh, uh, and, and, not to, um, and not to the Canaanites. Well, obviously Canaan, in this story of Noah, is, is understood to stand for the ancestor of the Canaanites who follow him in doing bad things. Now, in terms of his actual bad behavior, uh, Hebrew scripture uses a lot of euphemisms when it talks about uh, human physical nakedness and sexual activity. And uh, so it it will speak in a a kind of oblique fashion. But the implication here is more than simply that Canaan walked in and saw Noah without his pants on, but that something else untoward took place. Uh, That would be the kind of thing that would make a grandfather uh, irate at the indecency of his grandson. But again, I think the entire story has to be read as an etiology about the relationship of the Canaanites that were contemporaries to Israel. So then you have to ask the question, well, then how on earth does that apply to my life? Because, you know, I am, I am uh, neither living on the aftermath of the flood, uh, nor am I an ancient Israelite who's seeking to forcibly displace Canaanites. And the Church Fathers believed that all of the Old Testament, in all of its particulars, the significance is ultimately allegorical, and it points to our relationship with Jesus. And so it's very common among the church fathers to read, say, the warfare against the Canaanites as a kind of allegory for the warfare that we are to exercise against our own flesh and our immoderate temptations. So we should think less in terms of, you know, smiting a historical individual and more in terms of the, the kind of moral type that the character of Canaan is meant to represent and to extirpate those immoral tendencies from our own personalities. 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number. It is a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Miriam's watching on YouTube, Dr. Andrews, and she says she's currently in RCIA and interested in becoming a consecrated virgin. She wants to know if you have any tips on what she should do and uh, make sure to what she should do to make sure it's right for her, and she doesn't know any consecrated virgins. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So the most important thing to do is to discern whether this vocation is the right thing for you, right? And it sounds like you're beginning steps in that direction, and that's a good idea. Uh, you cannot do this without discerning with the help of a spiritual director. You should you should absolutely not take this decision on yourself. And in fact, I don't think any bishop would would uh, would authorize you to take this step 
without serious examination over a long period of time with a spiritual director or somebody appointed by the bishop to that task. So this is this is something you will discern with a director. And so the way to start is you you go make an appointment with your the pastor of your parish and sit down and say this is something I'm considering. I need direction, I need help. Um, you know, if you can't direct me, can you direct me to someone who can? Um, and uh, it may be something to discern with a with a priest who's a spiritual director. It might also be something to discern to an older female religious, uh, you know, the the mother superior of a convent or a religious community nearby you, or a, or a sister who has a lot of experience in consecrated life. And and definitely one thing you want to rule out is if you fall if you feel called to the consecrated life, you want to definitively rule out consecrated life in community, which is the most common form of consecrated life for men and women. Be sure that you're not called to be a nun or a religious sister before you decide on consecrated virginity. And and you may say, well, you know, I don't I don't feel like teaching school or working in hospitals and understand there are many, many charisms, many charisms in women's religious communities, and some, you know, far more uh, cloistered and, and contemplative than others. And so just make sure that, that that's not your vocation. But again, this is something you would discern with direction, and I would recommend first your pastor, but also probably a, a wise female religious uh, who has probably walked that path before you. Next up is Yolanda, a first-time caller in Owensboro, Kentucky, listening on Savior Radio today. Yolanda, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, how are you doing? Hey, Yolanda, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm fine. My question is this. First, I'd like to explain that I, I'm Baptist and my husband is Catholic. And when before we got married, I signed papers and went to classes uh, dedicating that I would uh, raise my children Catholic. At that time, I wasn't asked to convert over to Catholicism. Um, so throughout, I have five children throughout their whole um, life and birth. I got them baptized. They went to school and, and received everything, all the sacraments. I go to church regularly with them uh, every Sunday. However, I'm not allowed to receive That's the right. sacrament. That's right. And I just wanted to know how and why. Okay, I've been sure going thing. To. Absolutely. So, Yolanda, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to understand that the answer you give me doesn't matter to me. I'm asking just for the sake of clarification, right? I don't have a dog in this fight. And I'm happy with you being a Baptist. I'm happy if you become a Catholic. I really don't want to push you on this one way or the other. I really just want to help you come to understand your own position better. So I'm really not trying to get any result out of you. All right? But I'm, I'm curious. Do you believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches, or do you maybe believe some of it and others you don't believe? And again, I don't really care how you answer. I just I just need to know for, for purposes of this call. Yeah, the only thing that I do have a question about is when they say the Apostle Creed, yep. and they say that uh, the uh, they at the very end they say about the Apostolic Catholic Church is the main church, you know, right, the right, church. right, the one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, right. Other than other than that, like. Uh, so, for example, the Catholic Church teaches that the Eucharist, the sacraments that you receive on Sunday, really is the true and substantial body and blood of Jesus. Is that something that you believe? I do. Okay. And do you believe that the priest has the power to absolve sins? 
I do. Do you believe that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, that, that, that Jesus established the chair of St. Peter and gave him jurisdiction over the whole Christian church? I do. Okay, well, hang on, because we're... Yolanda, you're like about a half inch from Catholic, so don't don't go away. We got to go to a break, but stay with me. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's a Friday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Friday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. And David, we're talking to Yolanda in Owensboro, yeah. Kentucky, about uh, why she can't receive communion exactly. with uh, her children. So b- before the break, I had, had asked Yolanda you know, if she believed what the Catholic Church taught. And Yolanda, I'll tell you why I was asking the question, because a lot of times when I get this question from people, it's from folks that, that don't believe most of what the Catholic Church teaches— and what I usually say to them is, well, you know, one of the things that communion in the Catholic Church means is it means I believe what the Church teaches. And so it's always strange when someone wants to receive communion in the Catholic Church if they don't believe the teaching, because I'm saying, well, why would you want to why would you want to engage in a contradiction where you say with your actions something that you don't believe in your heart? But that doesn't seem to be the issue with you, Yolanda, because when I was beginning to ask you about Catholic doctrines, you said, well, you believe them, okay? And so uh, another question I would have for you is if you, if you do believe the teaching of the Catholic Church, then, then what's stopping you now from becoming Catholic? Uh, going to the classes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So you're, I would say in that case, you're, you're like, you, you, it seems to me like you're about a hair, hair's breadth away. You're just like an inch away from being Catholic. Okay. So here's the difference. Here's the difference. Why, why you would need to wait to go to the classes to, to become Catholic. A Catholic is somebody that believes the Catholic faith, which you do, and accepts the Church's authority over their life. And that means not just that I believe what the Church says, but I do what the Church says, and I submit the judgment of my conscience to the Church's minister. And so, for example, in the confessional, one of the things that happens in the confessional is I get absolved. You know, the priest forgives me for my sins, and that's wonderful. But in the same act, when the priest forgives me, he's also basically validating, he's verifying that I am fit in my conscience to go safely to communion. Because you remember St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if you go to communion with the wrong disposition, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors. And, and so I am submitting myself to the Church's authority and jurisdiction to verify, to bear witness that my conscience is clean and I can go to communion. I'm not taking that judgment on myself. I'm not declaring myself fit. I'm letting the Church pronounce that judgment on me. But the Church only pronounces judgment over her members. The Church doesn't pass judgment over somebody who's a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever. It only passes judgment over her own members. And so, so I, I have to submit myself to that judgment and that authority. And so, you know, if you were to become Catholic, you'll be admitted to communion and to the sacrament of confession and to the fellowship of the Church, and you agree to submit to its jurisdiction, to its authority over your life. And that's, that's really the only thing that's missing in your case, is just that final step of saying, 
yes, I agree to live in accordance with the church's teaching. You know, and I think you'd probably see why if someone's unwilling to do that, if someone says, well, you know, I'd like to receive communion, but I'm not willing to live in accord with the church's teaching or submit to its jurisdiction, then we wouldn't really be doing them a favor to give them communion because communion means that I commit to all of those things. So, you know, if the only thing that's stopping you from becoming Catholic is is going to RCIA, you know, if you said you've been going to church with your husband and your children the whole time they've been growing up, maybe, you know, you might think about having a conversation with your pastor and saying, hey, I'm I'm ready to become Catholic, and uh, maybe you have some kind of impediment that makes it impossible for you to go to class. You could say, I'm ready to become Catholic, and I'll read anything you want me to read, or I'll watch anything you want me to watch. Uh, you know, can can we get this done? And, you know, maybe I have this, this other obligation that prevents me from going to the classes, but I'm otherwise disposed to go. Can we find another way in? I mean, I myself am a convert to the Catholic Church, and, and I didn't go to the classes. I, I found an Another, I worked with a priest individually and found another path into the church, so there may be something like that for you to do. But that's a really encouraging call, Yolanda. I hope I've helped you, and I hope you can call me back in a few weeks or a few months and tell me about how you've gone to communion because you've entered fully into the Catholic faith. God bless you, Yolanda. We will keep you and your whole family in our prayers as well. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Maria's up next in northern Minnesota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Maria, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi. Thank you, Dr. Anders, for taking my call. Sure. My question is, I'm a... Uh, cradle Catholic, and have been gotten some conflicting uh, reasons, or not reasons, but conflicting statements as to one of our dogma, and I, I or maybe dogma is not the right word, but at any rate. Okay, the abstinence of food before communion. I have been told both that it needs to be an hour before Mass starts and an hour before you receive communion. Can you give me some clarity yep, on that? Yep, I can totally help you out. I'm going to read to you from the Code of Canon Law. So this is where the buck literally stops. A person who is to receive the Most Holy Eucharist is to abstain for at least one hour before Holy Communion, before Holy Communion, from any food and drink except for only water and medicine. So... Uh, right before Mass, you could, or, excuse me, right before communion, you could have a sip of water. If you had some medicine you had to take every 15 minutes, you could have that. But other than water and medicine, you are supposed to have abstained for one hour before communion. Now, you know, maybe different with a daily Mass, for most Sunday Masses, my experience is communion falls someplace around the 45 minute mark. And so, you know, in a pinch, if, uh, you know, if communion was at 5.45, Mass started at 5, and you had a snack at 4.40, you would meet the technical parameters of the law. And, uh, you know, well, I mean, someone might tell you, well, you know, as a pious exercise, it might be a better discipline to refrain an hour before you actually go to Mass. That's not what the law says. The law says one hour before communion. And I, I will I will tell you a little secret. I don't make a habit of this. I don't make a habit of it. But I have in my life been conscious of, oh my gosh, I ate that cracker at 445. You know, and I've started the, the clock on my watch. And I've looked for that 60-minute mark. 
And I remember I, one time I even remember I was at Mass and they started serving communion. And I was looked down at my watch and I was like, 55 minutes, man. I'm, I'm not there yet. I know what I'll do. I went and got in the very back of the line, you know, and I let the slow communion line go ahead of me. And I received communion at like 60 minutes and 30 seconds. I, I snuck in right under the wire. You know, I don't recommend that as the normal policy, but that is technical obedience to the law. Is that helpful for you, Maria? I have, yes, I have done that myself, <laughs> and I just wanted to make sure that I was on the right vein. You're I fine. Also teach, and my confirmation kids were like, okay, which is it? And I'm like, you know what? I know who I'm going to call to get this answer. So. <laughs> yep, we got it. Awesome. God bless you, Maria. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next stop is Saddlebrook, New Jersey. Anthony is watching on YouTube today. Anthony, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. I love your show. Uh, Cradle Catholic. And I've been listening to a lot of uh, Christian music on the radio. And uh, I keep hearing the lyrics saying that what happened at Calvary is more than enough. And everything points to Calvary and what Jesus did. My question is, number one, what do they mean by that? And two, is it uh, the same viewpoint uh, that the Catholic, from a Catholic perspective? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So we are, we're talking about the theology of the atonement. And atonement is the technical term for what Jesus accomplished on the cross. How is it that Jesus' death on the cross actually saves us? And while it would be true from one point of view within Catholic theology to say that the death of Jesus is more than enough, you, unless you specify further, that statement would be subject to some gross misinterpretation by our Protestant brothers and sisters. And let me explain how. The fundamental difference between the way Protestants, and this includes your worship singers, who almost all of whom are, are sort of a degraded form of Calvinism in the way they think about the, the cross. All of those Protestant worship leaders and theologians, when they talk about what Jesus did on the cross, here's how they conceptualize it. In their mind, um, humans have all sinned, and God is angry at people for sinning, and that our sins are so great that there's no way in justice that God could ever forgive us, and, and that, uh, that we merit an infinite punishment, and even that would not satisfy God's wrath, and there's nothing we can do to make up for it. There's no act of penance, there's no act of reparation, there's no good deed we could do that would balance the scales enough for God to accept us. We're just absolutely toast. And yet, and this is a bit odd because it seems to make God kind of a schizophrenic personality, they suppose that although God hates us and is angry at us, and Jonathan Edwards once said that as, as, as despicable as the most loathsome serpent is in your eyes, you're worse than that in God's eyes. I mean, that's how they view it. In spite of that, that there's a part of God that wants to forgive you, but he just can't. He's sort of bound by the exigencies of his own nature not to forgive you without this bloodthirsty punishment. And so God comes up with a scheme, and here's the scheme. The Son of God will become incarnate. And, and be infinitely meritorious, and that God will punish Jesus vicariously for sins that he did not commit. He'll impute the sins of the human race to Christ. He will punish Jesus Christ for sins he didn't commit, and then he will impute Christ's, Christ's righteousness to believers, 
and count Christian believers as if they had done Christ's righteous deeds, even though they haven't. Right? It's called the theory of imputation. And so the cross is the place where God punishes sin, our sins, but he punishes them in the person of Jesus vicariously. And in consequence, this is the Protestant theory, since literally every any punishment you could ever receive for sin has already been meted out to Christ, provided the atonement is applied to you personally, you're good to go, man. I mean, past, present, future, it's all been paid for. You, you got your, your one-way ticket to heaven. There's literally nothing you can do to screw this up. You're guaranteed salvation. You can know for sure you're going to heaven because Jesus is already—there's no hell left for you to go to, basically. It's already born by Jesus on the cross. And so when they say his death was more than enough, that's what they mean. They mean that it was enough to cover everything that you would ever do in the future. You get your get-out-of-hell-free card, your heaven is guaranteed. That's totally different from the way Catholics think about the atonement of the death of Christ. <clears throat> Here's how Catholics understand the death of Christ. Um, we're alienated from God, to be sure, but we're alienated from him because our wills are turned away from him. I mean, just like if I'm alienated from my wife because we're mad at each other, it's not because she's obligated to like mete out some sort of infinite punishment to me. It's, it's because we literally have our hearts turned away. And, and to be reconciled to God, what we need is to have our hearts turned back. And, and uh, uh, we, 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 there are things we need to do in terms of reparation and, and making atonement, making amends, all right? But fundamentally, the problem is that our heart is turned away from God and he's turned towards God. And what Jesus does is, it's not just the death of Christ, although this is involved, it's the totality of Jesus' ministry. From the moment of his incarnation to the moment of his ascension, the whole ministry of Christ, all of his life and incarnation, is oriented towards turning human hearts back to God. So, uh, in his parables, for example, he helps reveal us to ourselves. He helps us grasp the depth of our own alienation from God and from a good conscience. Uh, in his manner of life, he demonstrates to us what a righteous life of union with God, a life of love and charity and justice, looks like and calls us to imitate him. Um, he, he lives that ethic heroically all the way to a death of martyrdom, so demonstrating by his own actions the, the very life of love and self-sacrifice that he has preached. And God regards Christ's martyrdom as meritorious. Just like we would regard, say, the death of Martin Luther King Jr., when he went out there and, and, and preached civil rights and, and human rights and human dignity, even knowing it might cost him his life, we all regard that as a heroic, brave, courageous, self-sacrificial thing to do. God regards the martyrdom of Jesus as a heroic, noble, self-sacrificial thing to do, and he rewards Christ, he rewards him for his, for his, uh, his supererogatory works of merit, okay? And the reward that he gives to Jesus is twofold. Number one, the resurrection from the dead is proof to all men that God has been at work in Christ and vindicated his ministry. This is God saying, yep, I put my stamp of approval on Jesus. And Christ merits the gift of the Holy Spirit and grace to be poured out on the members of his body, which are the church. So if we are joined to Christ in baptism, Jesus has won for us this gift of grace, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And what that does in our lives is it supernaturally affects the transformation of our hearts. It, it turns our hearts back to God. So we have the example and the teaching of Christ to tell us what we need to do, 
But then we have the Holy Spirit that empowers our lives, that enables us to do it. And so Christ, God can look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, not because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, but because it's actually been infused into us. Our life and character have been transformed by the ministry of Jesus. We've become new people, and we've reestablished a relationship with God. Notice how different this is from the Protestant point of view, because in the Catholic scheme, at no point is God vicariously punishing Jesus for our sins. And also at no point are we given a get-out-of-hell-free card. Because for this to work in us, for the atonement of the death of Christ to have its effect in us, we actually have to turn our wills back to God and persevere in that state. So Jesus says, whoever perseveres to the end will be saved. Now he gives us all kinds of helps. He gives us the sacraments, the teaching of the church, the fellowship of the church, teaching example of Christ. He gives us a lot of ways to persevere. But the way the atonement has its effect in us is by giving us the grace and strength and, per- and, 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 and uh, stick-to-itiveness to actually persevere in a life of righteousness until we die. And so you, it really couldn't be any more different from the Protestant viewpoint. And, and our view is a biblical one, not, and I'll make that case another time. It's drawn directly from the pages of Scripture. The Protestant view is, a, is entailed by the bizarre Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is no place in Scripture. And it, it implies that God is unjust because it has him punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty. So there are a lot of problems with that Protestant viewpoint. The uh, Catholic one, I think, is uh, far more salutary, far more edifying, far more rational. So there are really big differences. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Anna Marie is next, a first-time caller in the great state of Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Anna Marie, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Hi there. Um, so in reading the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, where you know we're told that the story of Adam and Eve, um, it's figurative language, it's a story to help us to know God and ourselves and to help us to understand why we're here. Um, at what point in the Old Testament are we to understand that uh, these are real historical people? Sure. Like, was Job a real person? Sure. Like, at what point are, are, they, are they actual historical people? Sure, absolutely. So let me, let me begin by saying that there are some biblical characters whose historical existence is a matter of Catholic dogma. In other words, a Catholic would not be free to say, well, that's just a nice story or a metaphor or a myth. You could not do that. Principally, you cannot say that about the person of Jesus. Jesus really did live in the first century Palestine under the Roman Empire, uh, you know, as a Jew and in obedience to the law, and he really died a historical death. He was buried in an historical tomb. Uh, the tomb was emptied on the third day, and he, and he rose uh, to heaven uh, ascended uh, after his death, and and if you had had uh, you know a Polaroid camera, you could have filmed it and put it in a scrapbook and kept it. I mean, it, that's historical. Uh, the, the company of the apostles is historical. The life of the Blessed Virgin Mary is historical, right? So these things are not they're not just metaphors. These are it's one of the things that distinguishes the Christian story from from other religious traditions, uh, whose myths and legends take place uh, you know once upon a time, as it were whereas the foundational character of Christianity is that it took place in, in history and time, and, and you can see its impact uh, throughout the history of, uh, of world civilization. So it really is an historical religion. All right. Now, when it comes to the text of the Old Testament, um, so a uh, little, bit, little bit different. Um, the, the way—and I'll, and I'll say that the Church has kind of nuanced its position on this. So, say, 100, 150 years ago, 
um, when the discipline of higher biblical criticism was just getting started, there was um, a great deal of nervousness on the part of church officials about what this might entail for the for the uh, authority of the Bible and its role in Christian life. And so there was a real caution about incorporating higher criticism into Catholic theology. Um, that really started to shift under the pontificate of, um, of Pius XII, and, and since then there has been an explosion of Catholic scholarship that takes the higher critical perspective seriously, up to and including um, the, the Holy Pontiffs. And so, you know, Pope John Paul II, for example, just avidly integrated a historical critical point of view into his interpretations of Genesis that he gave in Theology of the Body. Uh, Pope Benedict, of course, very avid user of critical, not not uncritical, uh, but definitely made use of historical critical studies in his in his works on the Bible. In fact, under Benedict's uh, pontificate, there was a uh, there was a uh, a synod of bishops on the Bible that produced a document called Verbum Domini on the Word of the Lord that lays out principles of biblical interpretation and the role that higher criticism can take and questions of historicity and these sorts of things. So real embrace of the church of this perspective. And what that means is uh, you are you are free to make use of all of the tools of, of archaeology, the tools of, uh, of higher biblical criticism to discern some of those kinds of answers. So, for example, I don't think there's anybody on the planet that believes that there was no historical David. I mean, there, there absolutely was an historical David, and that all the archaeological evidence and literary evidence suggests that. Uh, the question of Job, much more touchy on the question of Job. Like, there doesn't seem to be a lot of independent data that would suggest that there really was a person named Job. Now, there may very well have been a person named Job who, who stands at the headwaters of a, of a tradition of storytelling that ultimately results in the composition of a poetic book on the problem of evil. Right, but in terms of my life, the significance of the Book of Job has has nothing to do with whether or not there was a guy that actually lived named Job. I mean, there he there could have been, but if there wasn't, nothing changes, because inspiration is something that attaches to the text of sacred scripture, not to its antecedent prehistory necessarily. And so, if the text of Job is is divine scripture inspired for my salvation and edification. The message that it teaches is about is about uh, the fact of human suffering and the ineffability of God. That's applicable to my life, whether or not there was an, an historical person, Job. And, uh, you know, I think many of the prophets are, well, certainly historical people, all of them, basically. Um, and, uh, um, and the, you know, the, the, wor- the writings of the major prophets are effectively their memoirs composed by their disciples and, and then put into some sort of systematic order. Um, you know, the other characters in Scripture that it's kind of hard to know about the question of their historicity, and some seem quite legendary indeed. Uh, but, uh, but that doesn't really have an effect on my spirituality. Now, the, the one exception to that would be the case of Adam. And Pius XII, who opened the door to the use of higher criticism, um, he, uh, he, he, he was more circumspect about what it would imply for the person of Adam. Not because he thought you should read Genesis like a fundamentalist, but he said, you know, the New Testament doctrine of redemption hangs on the parallel between Christ and Adam. And so he said, be very Catholic theologians, you be very careful uh, when you're messing with the person of Adam, because that that seems to be more central to theological anthropology. The questions of fall and redemption are tied much more directly to the person of Adam than they would be, say, to the, you know, Jephthah or Enoch or somebody like that.
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Quickly, we'll head to Joan in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Joan, just a couple minutes left with Dr. Andrews. What's your question today? Um, I'm, I belong to the St. Anthony Mary Florida Church, and I'm with the Legion of Mary group with the Presidium over there. Uh, we were having a little discussion because one of the ladies teaches RCIA, and they are from ages 9 to 18. And none of them, I think they're probably all of us, most of them have made the sacrament of baptism, but the rest have not. And there was a discussion that since they are not able to, or some of them are not because they live with one parent or the other parent, whatever reason, most of them did not attend Mass on Sunday. The thing is, they have not received all their sacraments. It's, they say it is a sin for them not going to Sunday Mass because they have made, some of them have made their baptism. I would like to know if that is true, uh, if, if that is true, they are, they are committing a sin, because if babies made the baptism, that means they could be committing a sin also. I have another question. You said about the one hour before communion. Yeah, we're going to have to know. limit it to just the one question. We're right at, right at the end of the program. Go ahead, um, Dr. Andrews. Yeah, thank you. So, so uh, Catholics are obliged to, to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, but for children, and, and honestly, I haven't got the canon in front of me, so I can't remember the age at which that pertains. Um, there, there are age limits on these things, and I just can't remember the number off the top of my head. But anyone who, it, where it is beyond their physical capacity to fulfill a commandment is not morally obligated to fulfill it. So a child, for example, who lives in a home and no, has no independent means of transportation, and that and members of that home are unwilling to take the child to Mass, the, ch- the child himself incurs no guilt whatsoever at all. And so I would never, I would never advise refraining from uh, initiating someone into the church for fear that their parents wouldn't take them to mass. If they, if they have the desire and the parents are willing, if they, if they want to be confirmed and receive holy communion, by all means, admit them to the church, and then, and then it's not on their conscience if the, if the parents won't take them. That's the parents' fault. You know, you want the kids to be connected to the church as, as much as possible, and they're only, they're only responsible for what they're capable of doing. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Rich Jesse. I'm Jack Williams sitting in for Tom Price today, live from the Legatus Summit in beautiful Dana Point, California. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Back at it again on Monday. Until then, God bless.